Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode of The Litigation War Room, I speak with Daniel Dalton, the nation's foremost litigator representing churches and religious bodies in land use and real property disputes. Dan is the author of several books, including, most recently, Religious Property Disputes and the Law. Dan and I discuss a pair of interesting cases involving land use and the Free Exercise Clause. Dan also provides insights for handling lawsuits against government entities. I enjoyed this interview with Dan Dalton, and I hope you do as well. Dan Dalton, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Great to be here, Max. Thanks for the opportunity. It's a real privilege and honor to speak with you today. Well, I really uh, am excited to have you on the show. Dan, you are uh, an attorney who focuses your practice on religious land use disputes, which is a really interesting area. To the listener at first blush, it may sound arcane, but it is actually an area that, as I understand, implicates issues of free exercise, constitutional issues, legal issues that are really fascinating and also that have important public policy implications. So uh, I'm very excited to have you on the show and to talk to you about your practice today. It's a real niche area. I, I never intended to go into this area. I kind of fell into it, and I'm so glad I did. Why don't you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and about your law firm? So uh, born and raised here in the Detroit, Michigan area. I uh, went to high school in Detroit, college in Western Michigan, law school at University of Detroit. After law school, I clerked for uh, Chief Justice Dorothy Comstock Riley uh, for two years and then went to uh, a firm that ultimately there was a split in that firm about two months after I joined. The firm I went with is called Johnson Rosati. And I was there for 10 years. I, I uh, worked with Carol uh, Rosati and Russ LaBarge and uh, did a lot of municipal defense work. And after that, started another firm with another partner for about 10 years or eight years. And the last 11 years, I've been with uh, Jana Tomich, my uh, partner, and now and uh, we're here in Detroit. And we do really three things. We do religious property disputes, which is the land use and zoning for, for churches. And also, if there's a, a local church that wants to leave a denomination and keep their property, uh, we work with the local churches. We do regular land use and zoning here in Michigan and Illinois. We have, we've got an office in Chicago and in Rockford, Illinois, so we do work there as well. And then we do uh, general business work. Uh, Jana does a lot of work with privately held companies, usually under $100 million, and does their fractional general counsel type work. Okay. And are all of your clients churches and religious entities? No, I'd say about a half of them are. You know, in the land use world, we work with developers. We work with uh, like American Tower. They do put up cell towers. We work with, you know, uh, private equity firms. Really, it's, it's kind of split between the two. We've done all religions except for uh, Latter-day Saints with the Mormons. So we've done mosque, we've done uh, Hindu temples, a lot of synagogues, a lot of Chabad's, pretty much all the Protestant-type religions. We did the uh, Scientology, which is downtown Detroit. We, we did uh, their property uh, right down the street from us as well. So, yeah, that's our, that's our sweet spot. Okay, good. And how many attorneys are at your firm? Uh, there's six of us. We're small but mighty. Dan, tell us about, I know that you're a prolific writer, you write articles, you have a lot of speaking engagements, and I believe you've written at least a couple books. Tell us about your new book. 
Well, the most recent book I wrote was on religious property disputes, and it was really a general overview of those areas of inter-church disputes, where it's a church that wants to leave a denomination, intra-church disputes, where you have like a non-denominational church or a synagogue or a mosque that, you know, there's a split in the congregation and, and who gets the property. And then the third part is, is an overview on the religious land use and zoning work. Where we get a lot of our work is is there's pretty much every religious institution has a, a an attorney in their congregation. And the religious leader goes to that attorney to help, you know, buy the property. And, and most attorneys know how to do closings and things like that. But when they come into zoning disputes, they're, you know, after they bought the property and they can't use it, that's when they kind of reach out to us. And, and the first call is, is, can you give me some information? And then the second call is, is, would you like to join me? And then quickly thereafter, it's just take it over. I don't want anything to do with this. So the, the whole idea of the book is, is to give attorneys the idea that there is someone out here that can help. I mean, there's not a ton of these cases, but there's, you know, it's a real niche area. And you really want somebody that knows the whole scope of this area of the law uh, to help you out. And, and that's really uh, what that, those books are about. Okay. And that's an ABA publication? Yeah, this is the third one, third book through the American Bar Association. And with that, most of the proceeds, of course, of the book sales go to the ABA, but I get all of the film rights. So if anybody wants to do a film on this, they're more than welcome to. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, I know that a good part of your practice deals with a federal statute called RELUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Can you tell our listeners, just to set the stage for some of the things we'll be talking about later, um, what, what is RELUPA? Well, RELUPA is the great equalizer in land use work. In general, in land use, uh, the local governments have the upper hand when it comes to making decisions on zoning and, and development. It's very difficult to prevail in uh, zoning cases or taking cases where uh, the local government uh, enacts ordinances or makes decisions that make uh, development economically infeasible or just uh, impossible to do. But what RELUPA does is it, it puts religious institutions on a level playing field. Prior to RELUPA, what was happening is, is uh, cities would, would zone churches out of their communities for loss of tax base, or they would not allow churches to be in because they just didn't want the church. They'd rather have a, a Walmart or something like that. So what Congress did uh, when they passed it in 2000 is, is they, they found that you had all these problems across the country with churches and religious institutions trying to get uh, land and to use the land. They enacted the statute unanimously uh, so that religious institutions could at least be treated on the same level playing field as a, other assembly uses, like a theater or a funeral home or a city hall or a park. And it's just, it, it doesn't give religious uses an upper hand. It just puts them on an equal playing field with other secular uses, assembly uses. I used to live and practice in San Antonio, and once in a while, I would get up to the city of Bernie. I always think of that uh, famous, or at least lawyer famous case of Flores v. City of Bernie, which struck down the predecessor statute, RIFRA. This is probably getting way, way into the weeds, but my understanding is RELUPA was a more narrowly tailored statute that was passed in the, in the wake of, of that uh, Supreme Court decision. That's exactly right. When, well, RIFRA is still around. It, just apply, it doesn't apply to the states, but RELUPA was passed in response to the Bernie decision. And I know you also handle cases involving, and I think you mentioned, congregations leaving or separating from their denominations. And I can only imagine the kind of hairy issues that arise when that happens. Can you comment a little bit about that part of your practice? 
Sure. So back around the early 2000s, uh, there was a split in the Episcopal Church on theology, and a number of uh, local congregations wanted to leave, and they did leave, and they, they thought they could take their property with them. And they quickly found out that because of the title uh, and because of other uh, issues with articles of incorporation and whatnot, uh, that they lost the property. Uh, so we started working with other churches in kind of getting churches ready to go uh, and positioning themselves in a, a place so they could leave and keep their property. And so we worked with Episcopal churches, and then it went to the Presbyterian USA. That denomination had those issues late, late 2000s, uh, early 2010s, Christian Reformed and Evangelical Lutherans. I was part of the Methodist Church for about 30 years, and uh, I was invited to a meeting in 2015 uh, which turned into a group that wanted to do some revival work of the denomination, but also create an entity just in case the Methodist Church split. So I got to learn the Methodist uh, uh, polity as well. And from that, I've just we've helped about 54 Methodist churches across the country uh, leave the denomination and keep their property. We've also worked with you know synagogues, mosques, and temples where they had this issue, non-denominational churches on this issue as well. But the Methodist is really kind of right now is our sweet spot. There's about 30,000 Methodist churches in the country. The denomination is going to split, most likely in 2024. And the question is, is do you want to stay with a dying denomination or do you want to go on your own or, or join a new one? And if you want to go on your own or join a new one, these churches have to get themselves in a position organizationally before they leave. And, and we do that. We help them do that and help them leave as well. Wow, that's that's very interesting. That could be a whole podcast in itself. I do want to talk about a couple of cases that you've handled that are very interesting. The first one is called Academy of Our Lady of Peace v. City of San Diego. And my understanding is this involves a Catholic girls' school um, in San Diego that was an older school, I think founded in the 20s, um, with a lot of older architecture and the school started outgrowing the buildings that it had on its campus and the needs of the student body were were changing and this precipitated a dispute with the city of San Diego. Tell me all the ways that I got that wrong and uh, let our listeners know about the kind of the basic facts of the case if you could. And knowing you hit it right, it was uh, it was a former uh, mansion in San Diego overlooking Mission Valley. So if you're familiar with the area where Qualcomm Stadium used to be, you look straight up uh, and that's where Our Lady Peace is today. And they had been around for a long time, and, and they wanted to update their facilities uh, to compete uh, with other schools that had more offerings and things like that. So they needed to update their campus. They needed to build a parking lot and structure. They needed a new building. Unfortunately for them at that time, uh, the neighbors uh, really didn't care for them because it was a, a private school. It's walled. The neighbors used to walk their dogs and stuff through the campus, but they put a wall up, and they didn't like that. They didn't like the idea of having construction going on. And, and quite frankly, it's just a very anti-Catholic area. At the same time, there's an individual who is running for city council, who's now the mayor. His name is Todd Gloria. And uh, Todd Gloria went to the neighbors and told them, if you support me in this election and then also financially support me uh, later on and I get elected, I'll make sure this development doesn't occur. So he got elected. They uh, held a fundraiser and paid off his uh, campaign debt. And then he, uh, as soon as he got into the city council, uh, he pressured the planner to deny a conditional use permit. And so all this came out during discovery and trial. And, uh, you know, it was, just, it was just really too bad. It was just a lot of politics that were involved in that. The jury did not feel too sympathetic for the city and, 
and really uh, exacted their displeasure with their verdict. And then the court also granted land use uh, entitlements that they were looking for as well. The good part of it is, is I was able to live out in San Diego from like January through March uh, while trial was going on. Perfect time to be there when you're a Detroiter, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And just for our listeners, a conditional use permit is basically an exception to something that's ordinarily forbidden under a particular zoning ordinance? Yeah. It's, so the zoning ordinances usually have a permitted use or a conditional use permit, uh, which is you can get the use approved, but you have to apply. You have to do a certain number of things to get those permissions. Like you might need to have setbacks or landscaping or whatever, you know, color of building or whatever the case may be. What was it that they wanted to do that the city wasn't going to let them do? What they wanted to do is is they wanted to modernize their campus. So the existing buildings, they wanted to basically remodel their existing buildings. They wanted to add uh, a new parking structure. It was all street parking. There had no place to park. And then they wanted to build one new building as well. So basically, they weren't expanding their land footprint. You know, they're just using their existing land to do what they wanted to do, you know, for their, uh, for their ministry. And then how was the Relupa statute and free exercise of religion, how were these things implicated by this dispute? So what happened here is the suit was originally brought by another firm in San Diego who promptly advised uh, the school after they filed the lawsuit that they thought they were going to lose. So the school went and they found me at that point in time, and we kind of brought the whole thing back to uh, to winning uh, posture. But Relupa was implicated from the standpoint is that the denial of the conditional use permit, the plan of the school met all the requirements of the zoning ordinance. And there was an existing school, an existing private school that was secular nearby, and it matched up to those plans as well. So the denial, you know, approving a secular use, but denying a religious use gave rise to what's called an equal terms claim. And the denial of their ability to build their extra buildings, which was for religious uses, uh, was a substantial burden on their religious exercise. So that's how RELUPA uh, came into play. And the free exercise claim, that came into play basically through the same way of the substantial burden, where the uh, inability to use their property and their land, and it was zoned for the use, it was just they just wouldn't allow the, uh, the permits to issue based on the pressure that was put on the planner by Todd Gloria. That gave rise to a constitutional violation as well. And then the jury didn't think much of the city's position and um, found in your favor, and the judge awarded you some some relief. And then it went up on appeal. Is that right? Yeah. So the city appealed. And then right after that, they asked to uh, enter into settlement negotiations. The goal of the school was just to get the permits. You know, they, they weren't really out for money, even though we did very well with the jury and with an attorney fee award as well. But they just wanted the permits. So in exchange for permits and for accelerating the timeline for inspections and additional permits that would be needed in the future, the uh, school agreed to reduce the amount of money uh, that was awarded from a jury and, and from a fee petition. And it, it worked out great for the school because everything's built now and the school is thriving. And the interesting thing, too, is, is they really uh, regained a relationship with the city and the neighbors and uh, with Todd Gloria, who's, you know, again, not the current mayor of the city as well, they, they really worked hard and were intentional about getting that relationship because they didn't know that they had a bad relationship with the city or the neighbors until the neighbors told them that. So <laughs> it all came down to walking the dogs across their lawn. They were upset about that. Hey, guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Fort's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. 
Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in LA? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Forts Legal has you covered. I use Forts Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Forts Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Forts Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at fortslegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or call 844-730-4066. And then I want to talk about another case, too, that, that you mentioned to me before our podcast. West Valley Christian Center v. City of Los Angeles, another California case. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Sure. This was an interesting case. Uh, West, West Valley is a, a church that's been around for about 90 years in the Valley. So in Chatsworth, you're familiar with San Fernando Valley. They're, they're over there. A developer came to buy their campus to put homes on uh, the area, and they gave them a, a price they couldn't really refuse. So West Valley did, uh, took the proceeds to buy additional land in the area and build a new facility because uh, their facility was pretty old and it needed a lot of work. And in California, how it works is you have to get the local council member uh, to approve your location before you can go and, and use it. So it's, it's like an alderman's privilege where you tell the, the council member, I want to be here. And they give you the thumbs up or thumbs down. They won't tell you if you, you put the thumbs down, you know, we're going to deny it. But you kind of know that's just the practice, how it works. So in this case, the council member, whose name is Mitch Englander, was uh, presented with a number of sites. He said no to all of them. And they said, well, why don't you have my buddy here is selling his property. Why don't you buy that one? And uh, they did. It was actually a really good piece of property right on an intersection on the main road as well. So they bought it. They went for the zoning entitlements. Uh, the neighbors objected. They, they said they didn't want any church. They didn't think any there should be a church in the valley. And so uh, it was denied through that. Really kind of, you know, Englander was you know, it indicated to our clients that he would make sure this would happen, and then he kind of flipped. So we sued, and then during the course of discovery, it turned out that he was doing some things he shouldn't have been done that the FBI found out about, and uh, he ended up in jail and is now in the federal penitentiary somewhere in California. Because of unrelated matters or because of his dealings with this church? Both. The Olympics is coming to Los Angeles, and there's some land that he was trying to maneuver, all sorts of things. So, wow. Uh, yeah, I know. It's crazy. But at the end of the day, we were able to uh, work with the city to resolve the dispute, to get the building built, and sell it that way. We just kept plugging away and, and just kind of beating as hard as we could on that drum until we found out about Englander and we found out about some other things and kind of forced them into that position to settle. And I take it that there is an issue here that's somewhat similar to the Our Lady of Peace case in that the church is being treated differently from other comparable organizations. A secular school in particular. A secular school, movie theaters, you know, public parks, public schools. In this one, it was a secular school. It was the, I can't think of the name of the school right now, but it's the school that all the Lakers send their kids to for basketball. It's where LeBron James' son goes, plays basketball at. And it's a very prominent school in that area. And so they gave them everything they wanted on a similar piece of land and similar use and things like that, but not the church. 
Right. So if the objection is, well, look, we don't want the traffic, we don't want people congregating, all this doesn't fit with what our uh, rules are for this area. Well, what about the school where you're letting them do all these same things, right? Exactly. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the settlement that was reached. So in that case, we got the zoning entitlements. There was a, a number of zoning issues that were needed. We needed some variances. We needed some height variances and setback things. We needed, from a traffic perspective, because it was on a busy road, we needed some indents on the road. So the Department of Transportation was able to kind of do that work for us as well. Uh, we needed to run water to the building um, in, in Chatsworth, where that area is, is actually an old horse farm area. So the water lines don't necessarily run throughout the city. So we needed the city to run the water to us. So they did that. And then they paid attorney fees and they paid the church uh, as well. Oh, wow. Worked out really good. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And you just pushed and pushed and basically got through discovery and reached this settlement. That's exactly right. And did these criminal issues implicating the the person that you you mentioned, um, those have something to do with, with it too? Yeah, as soon as the FBI, uh, I contacted the city attorney's office to talk to them about, you know, this case, they quickly contacted me and said, let's mediate this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's when the FBI calls, you know, that, uh, that kind of pushes things, I think. People tend to listen. Yeah, kind of tends to wake people up. Well, good. Sounds like you got a fabulous result. I'd like to just talk a little more broadly Dan, you've been litigating against the government basically your whole career. Although some, you began defending the government, you started representing municipalities. The first 10 years was uh, working with municipal defense. So okay. it was for a firm that was basically in-house for an insurance company that represented municipalities. So Okay. And then was it when you started your own firm that you kind of switched sides? That's correct. Yeah, that is exactly right. We had made, I made a lot of uh, contacts in the, you know, decade, you know, representing government and um, kind of plateaued at the firm. I, I had a great mentor in Carol Rosati uh, at that firm, uh, working with a lot with uh, Randy Pentuck, who's the city attorney in Riverview. And he did work in Melvindale and Taylor and a couple other downriver cities and Russell Barge over in, on the east side. And so with that experience of representing government, I thought it'd be, I could be of assistance with uh, developers, you know, trying to get through zoning entitlement without litigation. And that seemed to work, and, and that worked out really well. Could you compare, for our listeners, litigating against a government entity versus litigating against just a corporation or another organization or an individual? What, what's different about suing or litigating against a, a government entity? Immunity. Um, that's the big issue. So governmental entities always have the upper hand uh, because they, in state court, uh, they have governmental immunity. For torts, and in federal court they have qualified immunity, so they have the the ability through a you know statute and through judicial creation to do acts and to do things that are you know anywhere else in the world they'd be illegal, and you get fired for, and you have all sorts of you know tort claims and whatnot. It doesn't apply to government. So give, give me an example. There's a case called EJS versus Toledo where a uh, city council members in Toledo uh, were approached by individuals who wanted to build a charter school there. And the charter school people were told by the council members, if you pay me X dollars, we'll get this approved. So they went to the FBI and they told them that, and the FBI then arrested the council members. In the interim, their proposal was denied. 
So they sued the city, you know, said, hey, this violates due process and is it taking and whatnot because of I couldn't get this through because of what the council members demanded, which was illegal. The courts found that qualified immunity denied their right to go forward, which is unbelievable. You know, like anywhere else in the world, that would be a viable claim, uh, but it wasn't here. So, so the immunity part aspect of these things is, is just so hard to get through and get around from a pleading standpoint and discovery standpoint and the whole nine yards. The other thing with discoveries is, generally speaking, is, is it's very difficult to depose the decision makers because there's a line of case law in Michigan, you know, that uh, a council member only speaks for himself, not for the entire council. So it's very difficult to depose a city council member to ask them, like, why did you vote this way or, or what, what drove you to this decision? Where again, you know, managers, directors, officers can be deposed in the corporate world and in, in those decisions, and that testament can really uh, assist you in this manner. So, litigating against government is a completely different world than commercial litigation. Yeah, and is there a political dimension to it too? I mean, especially in the land use and zoning context, I know your first line of recourse is to you know, take it up with the city council, for example. You know, it's the whole exhaustion of administrative remedies doctrine. And I don't know if you fight on that front or if you typically pick up the case after they've exhausted those things. But uh, my understanding is there's a real political dimension in, in these things. Yeah, I mean, there really is. It's it, And we do both, you know, we pick them up and then we also start with them as well. But, you know, politics plays a huge role into it. If, if, if you can't get your politicians lined up to support your project, it's not going to happen. Even if you have it's in the right zoning district and in the whole nine yards, through the last thirty years of doing this, I've just noticed that there's this pattern of of you know once people get elected to office, generally is there's this entitlement feeling of of this is my city, this is how I want to see things develop, which is fine, you know it's you know that whole thing, but not to the detriment of someone else where the use is a permitted use, and, and, and that's the problem, and that's where politics uh, runs its course. And then, you know, maybe you've kind of covered this already, but just for lawyers who may be looking at suing the government, what's one thing that every lawyer needs to understand about suing a government entity? You need to know about the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, Get all of your documents up front before you file a lawsuit. The act is very broad, and it applies to just about everybody except the governor and the legislature, state legislature, but local government, you can pretty much get everything. So make sure you do broad requests for emails, for documents for phone logs for you know photos for everything and 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 quite frankly what happens is is the clerk's office or or freedom information act coordinator doesn't necessarily communicate with the city attorney's office on these issues so they just gather everything up and nothing's reviewed and that's where you find your stuff so know the ins and outs of FOIA. do you find that government entities typically comply or have you ever had to fight it out you know for example suing for lack of compliance with FOIA, you know or the state law equivalent yeah, you know what what happens is, you know, there's some cities that don't comply with FOIA. You know that I think of one right now where I did a FOIA request and it was denied, and I called up the clerk and I said, "You don't have any documents on this," and he says, "I am the FOIA document." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. I, I had no idea. I think it was just his way of telling me, like, you're not getting anything other than from me, and I'm not giving you. Sounds to me like he wanted his deposition taken. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what we did. That's what we did. 
Well, Dan, I've really appreciated my time with you today. I think you've got a really uh, interesting practice area that is both important and and just involves a lot of interesting um, legal issues. Can you tell our listeners, where can they find you if they want to learn more about you and your practice? Sure. Uh, we're available on LinkedIn. You can find me there through the web at daltontomich.com. We have a pretty good uh, website as well. Our offices are, are in downtown Detroit in the uh, the Chrysler House, the former Dime Building, and also in Chicago and in Rockford, Illinois as well. So just Google us. You'll find us, and I'd uh, love to talk to you. What's the title of your, of your new book? It's called House of God, Laws of Man, uh, Religious Property Disputes, and it's available through the American Bar Association Bookstore uh, for, I think, six months. It was just published in July, and then it'll be on Amazon after that. Well, again, I thank you, Dan. Thank you for making the time for this and for sharing your insights on the litigation war room. Thanks, Max. Have a great day. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the Litigation War Room.